Greetings, listeners. Welcome to another episode of the show. It's your host, Dr. Michael Rivera here, and the Arcananth podcast is a podcast all about human biology and variation, and we speak to a number of experts active in different disciplines today to find out everything about the work that they do. Today, I'm really happy to introduce Dr. Stephen McLean. Stephen, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing quite well uh, also. It's um, a Monday morning as we record this. I think that you know we're going to release this later this week, uh, quite a quick turnaround. So yeah, I'm really excited for listeners to hear more about your work. Brilliant. And I'm quite happy to share it. <laughs> um, where are you calling in from today? Um, I'm calling in from East Lothian, which is just a little bit to the east of Edinburgh. Scotland. Ah, lovely. I, I've gone to um, to Scotland, I think, twice, and uh, I, I find it really like it's just a lovely place to to visit. It is absolutely a lovely place to live too. Um, we've got quite a nice little sort of waterfront stretch just out of the chaos of the, the city centre. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. Up in Scotland, where are you working at the moment? Can you share with the listeners what it is that you do? Yes, I am a lecturer in anatomy at the University of Edinburgh, um, which is one of three universities in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and I work out of their College for Medicine and Veterinary Medicine in the Biomedical Sciences Department. Cool. And so uh, before getting this post, uh, I was curious to know about like the, the education or like the training that it takes to um, you know, work in such a role. Did you have to, um, does everybody have to do a bachelor's and then a master's or PhD in order to, to get there? Um, not necessarily. Um, so my own background um, all took place up at the University of Dundee in the Centre for Anatomy and Human Identification. Um, and I did a four-year BSc in forensic anthropology, so an undergraduate honours degree. Um, I then self-funded about nine months of a master's by research. Hmm. But as we were going through that process, PhD funding came up. So we pretty much just morphed the master's into a PhD. <laughs> cool. Um, but I mean, in terms of teaching anatomy um, here, you don't really need to follow that sort of rigorous plan. Mm-hmm. Um, the team that I'm working in just now, there's about 15 of us. Um, and there's quite a mix of people where we've all gone through kind of BSCs in a variety of related subjects. Mm-hmm. And most of us have masters. There's a handful of us don't yet have PhDs or don't have PhDs at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're arguably some of the better educators among us. So yeah. um, I'm quite lucky, I think, to work in an institute where they're not actually that bothered about exactly what qualifications you have, as long as you can show you can do the work. Of course, yeah. And so how, how long, how many years does that take usually? Um, so mine was about nine years and um, the four year undergrad and my PhD was four and a half years, five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a few, there was an extension at the end and there was a small step out to do a teaching fellowship. So it, it was made longer by circumstance. Right, um, right. Yeah. Um, I think that happens to a lot of a lot of our colleagues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really cool to speak to you today because like we have had a lot of people featured on the show who, you know, work with human skeletons, especially like in forensics or or archaeology. But I think that's something that we rarely talk about is, you know, when it comes to studying, you know, evolutionary questions, dietary questions, looking at disease or activity, is that every osteologist who's working right now has to have a really good basis a really good base knowledge first of general osteology and how like the skeleton interacts with uh, other systems of the body. So when you first did your undergraduate studies, how much do you think that you knew going into 
your course, uh, going into your bachelor's, and then how much do you think that you have learned coming out of it? Um, I think I went in feeling like I knew a lot more than I did. Um, I'm very much from sort of the CSI generation. That, <laughs> that wave of TV shows was my formative watching on like Channel 5 here in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of came in from that sort of angle that I knew I had an interest in forensics and I kind of had an idea of what, what it was all about, you know, running around with the police solving crimes and chasing the bad guy. Yeah. Um, and then kind of through my high school education, I did some elements of work experience with the, the then local police, Grampian Police, which is now part of Police Scotland, yeah. and their crime scene um, investigator group called the Identification Bureau. Um, I was there for about a week, and I'm not going to lie, no offence to any forensic scientists listening, oh my God, I was so bored. (laughs) Because I was like 16 at the time, Mm -hmm. they could only really take me around when they were fingerprinting local lockers where there'd been small break-ins, and and it was one of those that was sort of like a wake-up call that it's not as shiny and as exciting as it looks on the TV. There's a lot of like a proper job in there. Yeah. Um, So then when I was looking at my education options, I kind of veered away from the generic forensic science and mm-hmm. it was actually a school careers counsellor um, who are not often the most helpful of people um, who just suggested completely out of the blue, oh have you looked at the osteology, the anthropology course at Dundee? And I had not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read through what it was and popped in an application and I was like, okay this is for me. Yeah. Um, I don't think I knew even then what I was kind of getting into because I still didn't appreciate the importance of the osteology and the anatomy, which sounds ridiculous looking back on it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the way that my course was structured, it was sort of an introduction to biomedical life sciences for the first couple of years. Yeah. Third year was then an intense anatomy year where we completed a full body dissection. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth year was where we did forensics. We actually learned about the skeleton in a lot more detail and how you can use it to identify an individual. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until that fourth year that I really figured out what I'd let myself into. <laughs> you said that uh, you mentioned, you know, this completed dissection. Uh, what is what does that mean? Like what what is involved with that? So that was where the University of Dundee still teaches like this, where their core anatomy program, which they run for third for anatomy students and for forensic anthropology students, mm-hmm. is um, involves a full body dissection. So you work through in teams of four. And you will essentially disassemble a human cadaver, somebody who's donated the body to medical science in the UK, mm-hmm. in order to kind of see firsthand how everything is connected together, how it all works. Wow. Um, and it certainly, it's, I mean, it's, there's a lot of arguments in the literature, but as far as I'm concerned, it's still one of the best ways to actually learn and get your head into anatomy and mm-hmm. see just how everything works. Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was quite a big step which I don't think I appreciated at the time that I did it mm-hmm. because I was there to do bones. I wasn't there to do the squidgy stuff on top. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I've had this really interesting evolution in my life. Now I teach anatomy. Mm-hmm. I've gone from describing myself as a forensic anthropologist that does anatomy to describing myself as an anatomist that does forensic anthropology. Mm-hmm. And it's been a very subtle, slow change over the past couple of years where I've suddenly realized <laughs> I focused on all the wrong things. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you remember if there were like uh, any areas in particular or, uh, you know, 
stuff that you really remember enjoying learning about quite a lot. I was always quite invested when it came to musculoskeletal anatomy. So looking at the muscular system, the skeletal system, and how they work together to generate movement. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the other elements, things are much more sort of relevant if you're looking at medicine and um, that sort of related practice, the organs and the, the cavities of the body always felt very challenging. Um, whereas something just so simple as being able to follow a muscle in the arm and see its its different points of connection and then go, oh, I, I see how that works. I see how that will then enable you to bend your elbow or mm-hmm. um, straighten your wrist. Mm-hmm. So that was always my sort of preferred elements. And what about your PhD? Like I know that you had done a big project on uh, looking at how parts of the pelvis grow. And how, how did you ensure that you were doing a PhD project that was going to be interesting and uh, original and, and sort of useful for our collective body of knowledge that, that we use in, in forensics and anatomy? So my PhD project was developed actually from my undergraduate project, which I did in, in my fourth year. I sort of fell into the project a little bit because it was one of those areas that my my primary lecturer in fourth year, Dr. Craig Cunningham, was sort of developing it being the basis of his PhD. Um, And I actually knew I wanted to work with him rather than I wanted to work on bone development. Mm-hmm. It was very much chosen for my own sort of sanity more than the research. Right. Right. And I grew to love it. Mm-hmm. Um so the purpose of the research was looking at a very rare skeletal collection they have up in Dundee, known as the Shore Collection, which contains the remains of several hundred sub-adult skeletons from a variety of archaeological and sort of historic anatomical sources. What is about um, uh, so What does sub-adult mean? Um, anybody sort of pre-ad, well, it includes adolescents, individuals who are not yet fully formed adults, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reluctant to say children, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so it, it contains individuals from the fetal period, sort of in utero development, all the way up to sort of 18, 19, 20, where the bones are finally starting to knit themselves together into their completed shape. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at ways that we could use this um, in order to kind of try and characterize some of the changes in early development in the skeleton. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people that, that work with this material will be aware of those, those sort of published data and textbooks which describe the big picture of how the skeleton comes together, which bits of the body begin to appear first, what extra parts join um, later on and fuse into forms of the adult bone. Right. But actually, we don't have a lot of detail about how that happens or why it happens. Mm-hmm. And everything is being pieced together by these sort of separate research groups. There's sort of simulations going on to kind of um, map how bone development might happen when you apply a certain set of parameters. Mm -hmm. There's genetic studies, there's animal studies, there's all kinds of mixed information. And our contribution was we were sitting there with the actual bones of individuals who were at some stage in that developmental process. So we wanted to look and see what we could add to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Are there like parts of the skeleton that maybe we know a little bit more about because it has been easier to study? And are there parts of the skeleton which... Um, I don't know, like maybe because of the structure of them or where they're located in the body, we actually don't, we know less because it's harder to study. In terms of how bone is actually formed and what, what generates a specific bone, like what makes a femur, the bone of the thigh look like a femur. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a huge amount of information on most bones in the body. It is all sort of derived from 
um, observations of sort of gross changes in their external appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, the only bone that we've got a vast amount of detail on is actually the femur itself. Because of its sort of position in the body, it's a very important bone for transmitting weight from the rest of your body down into your legs so that you can walk around, stand upright. Mm-hmm. Um, and historically, there was a, a couple of papers in the late 1800s which used this femur as its example, as the blueprint for their theory. And it's now the default bone. If you want to speak about that theory, you go back to the same bone and you you put your spin on it. There's a lot more information coming out now. The vertebra, the bones of the spine, are being researched in quite a lot of detail because they've got a lot of important implications for brain and spinal cord development. Mm-hmm. Um, and other long bones are now being looked at. So the, the humerus, the bone in the upper arm, for example, is getting a lot more attention so we can compare it to what we know about the femur. Um, and again, Dundee's contribution to that has really been focusing on the pelvis, which starts out as three separate bones in, in the child mm-hmm. and will eventually grow together to form one solid hip bone. Um, my supervisor's focus was the top part of that, known as the ilium, and then I went down to the, the, sort of the bottom part, the ischium, mm-hmm. which is colloquially known as the bum bone, because it's the part that you sit on that bears your weight when you're in a seated position. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> How do you go about studying something like that, which um, to, to me, like in... Uh, you know, in cadavers or like uh, even because in my experience in, in, in archaeology as well, um, you know, sometimes it's not really that well preserved. So I'm just curious, like what approaches you use to study that, that part? So we had a twofold approach. Um, the first thing that we would do is undertake a radiographic study. So collecting X-ray images, basically, of all of the bones that fitted our criteria within the collection. Mm. So in my case, it was all of these issues, this back part of the pelvis that was identifiably from a sub-adult individual. So it would be very small. It wouldn't be joined up to the rest of the bone. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do have either documented age or estimated age for all of the individuals in the collection. So we could quite easily sort of filter through. Um, and that was to basically allow us to do a really quick overview. We'll all have seen x-rays before where you've got sort of the bright patches where you've got really thick, dense bone mm-hmm. and the darker patches where the x-ray has been able to pass through. And what we were kind of trying to do was find a way of describing the overall patterns within that change from light to dark mm. that we could use to sort of suggest whether or not there was something causing bone growth or causing an absence of bone growth in specific areas. Mm-hmm. What does the light and the dark on the, you know, the X-ray uh, radiographs mean? So radiographs work on sort of the absorption of X-ray energy. So anywhere where you've got either a big, thick, solid piece of tissue or a lot of tissue, when you fire your X-ray beam in, it will get stuck in the tissue and it won't pass through it. Mm-hmm. So what you're left with on the, the film, the photographic film um, or the computer plate is this bright patch because the X-rays cause the film to darken. So anywhere where there's a dark patch, there's not a lot of tissue there. And anywhere where there's a light patch, there's something big, something solid blocking it. Mm. So you'll always see the outline of the bone will always be quite bright white if you look at a medical x-ray, for example. Um, what has sort of the central portions where you'll have bone marrow, things like that sitting in the middle, will be a little bit darker because there's less bone in the way. Right. And yeah, our purpose is basically to use that to try and show where the bone was developing and and why not just from an outside perspective of all oh, the bones getting bigger it's getting thicker mm-hmm. because one of the things we quite quickly identified was thick bone externally a physically big bone 
doesn't necessarily mean that there's a lot of bone inside it. Right. It could just be a large, relatively empty shell. Right. What would be like the implications then for people who may be working or like in forensics? So our first point was was largely we were treating it almost as bench research that we were trying to understand the underpinnings of what was going on mm-hmm. rather than approach it from any particular method. It was actually quite freeing because it was a very exploratory PhD Mm -hmm. sort of, here's bones, let's see what's going on inside, rather than a more focused attempt to create a forensic method. Or Our hope was that we might be able to come up with something that could be used to estimate the age of an individual, because if we could identify a reliable pattern of sort of, oh, at three years of age, this particular piece of bone suddenly becomes really dense. It could then be used forensically if we had individuals that we that we needed to estimate the age of. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't go quite that far, I don't think, but that was certainly one of the things we had in the back of our minds. Right. But it also was just useful for a more widespread understanding of how we develop as humans, which then features into sort of clinical medical science. If you're looking at um, interventions due to hip development abnormalities, mm-hmm. things like um, developmental dysplasia of the hip, which is where essentially the socket that the, that the bone of the thigh sits in mm-hmm. remains relatively shallow. It doesn't develop into this deep, tight cup. Um, and it makes it very, very common for the hip to dislocate, essentially. Mm. Um, there's a variety of different ways that clinically will intervene with that. Um, if individuals are caught really young, they'll use braces to try and, and change the mechanics of the hip to cause it to grow properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go above that, the process, if you kind of go above sort of five, six years of age, the process to fix developmental dysplasia of the hip becomes more complicated mm-hmm. because the bones have started to fuse together. And one of the ways that, that they can repair that is essentially by severing the bones again through what's known as an osteotomy. So you cut the hip back into its three original pieces and reposition them and then let it heal. Wow. And one of the things we were very interested to find out is the period where that begins to become an option surgically Mm -hmm. is actually a period where the hip is becoming physically larger, but in terms of its internal structure, it's becoming much, much emptier. There's less bone inside it um, in this sort of particular window, just around the end of infancy up to about three years of age, where suddenly the bone loses some of its mass as it kind of spreads around. Mm -hmm. And that we thought was quite interesting because if that's then an operational window, is that problematic? What does that mean for the the success rate of surgeries or the implications for the patient? Mm -hmm. Which is not something we've gone into yet. It's again, like I said, it was bench research with implications rather than Mm -hmm. a focused study. Um, From the moment that you were the one who attended anatomy lectures and then now you're the one teaching it, I'm curious to know like in that time period, uh, do you think that there's anything that has changed about anatomy education that you've seen, you know, just happen already, like right in front of your eyes? The fundamental process of learning anatomy, I don't think is changing particularly quickly mm-hmm. and quite rightly, because we still hold that if you want to learn anatomy, certainly Dundee, Edinburgh now, um, we very much believe that to learn anatomy well, you need to get in there and handle human tissue. You need to have experience of the body as a real entity. The way that we engage with that around sort of the, the basics of anatomy though, is definitely changing as we get a lot more sort of computer resources um, and imaging resources that we can try and integrate into our teaching. Mm-hmm. 
So um, Edinburgh is a little bit different to Dundee in that we don't run a great number of dissection opportunities. Most of the teaching that we do is through prosection work, which is essentially handling pre-dissected pieces of, of material. So an expert anatomist will go in and dissect uh, an arm, for example, to show a specific set of nerves. And then we'll show that to the students so they can see the nerves, but don't have to dissect the nerves. Because dissection is very time intensive. Um, and it can be quite challenging to get things out of it if you're not particularly competent at dissection mm-hmm. because you'll damage structures or you'll miss structures. Whereas if we sort of reveal them for you, you can then make sure that you've seen everything. What do you mean by time sensitive? Um, just simply, it's it's a process that takes a lot of time out of a curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent as undergraduate students nine hours a week for the full two semesters of our third year doing a full body dissection. Mm-hmm. And I would argue we could have taken much, much longer and seen things in a lot more detail. Mm -hmm. So particularly with Edinburgh being very medicine focused, there's not enough time around everything else that students need um, to be able to fit the dissection into a full year. Mm -hmm. When you're teaching anatomy, something that we learn a lot like in biological anthropology is that you can learn a lot about what makes us human in, in terms uh, of our biology, but there will always be you know variation on the individual level. And I'm wondering how much of this, does that factor into how you tell students about what makes a human body and, and how it functions, given that there is this variation? It's one of the things I think we try and labor as much as we possibly can as we go through. Um, you, you're quite right, human anatomy and, and variations in anatomy are kind of the cornerstone of what we're really trying to teach mm-hmm. um, particularly with our focus on medical students because you really want them to be aware if there's a particular change in a pattern of an artery um, or a vein or any any blood vessel nerve muscle you kind of want the surgeons that are then going to go on to operate on that to be aware that there's there's alternatives to the textbook norm yeah it's something that we struggle with a little bit more in a pro-section setting because the students aren't finding variations for themselves mm-hmm. they're very much dependent on the things that we have seen fit to show them and mm-hmm. um, but we do still try and show as many variations as many differences as we can because it's amazing sort of when you get to that level of um trying to track specific structures just how variable the human body is mm-hmm. Um, certainly when we were, when I was doing it as a student myself, it was sort of one of the things that would happen throughout any dissection class is if somebody found a particularly interesting, particularly relevant variation, if something just wasn't in quite the right place, mm-hmm. there would be almost sort of a whip round to, to make sure you have a look so that you can get that appreciation of this change so that you can kind of then factor into your own understanding of how everything works together. Yeah. Do you have a, a good example of that happening? Uh, I imagine it's not as you know dramatic as uh, you know having every single organ uh, developing in the on the opposite side, left and right. We have never. But, I, I have never seen that particular abnormality yeah. cross cross my table. Um, a lot of it is not. You're right. A lot of it's not. It doesn't look as exciting from big picture sort of a, a nerve branching in a strange way um, mm-hmm. or passing out from a separate piece of tissue to the way that you were expecting it to and um, never feels that exciting to a lay person but I can't I can't explain what it is about that just subtle change that gets an atomist just overly excited one of my colleagues spends quite a lot of time looking out for anatomical variations with his master students mm-hmm. um, and they found quite a few very interesting patterns in muscles where structures that you would expect normally to be one large muscle passing down, and um, for example, in at the base of the thumb, 
was actually passing down as six separate pieces of muscle. They're all still came from the same place and they, they looked like they would do the same thing mm-hmm. but it's just this madness that you have this one solid thing that's just decided that it wants to be six wow um yeah it was it was an interesting <laughs> amazing yeah i think that makes a lot of sense then to um you know teach you know future medics and doctors about this variation i know that there are a bunch of veterinary students as well that are sitting in your classes what do you think that they are getting out of your lectures i don't I actually teach too many veterinary students, mm-hmm. I don't think, um, unless they're sneaking in. <laughs> it, is, it is something that I teach to my osteology students, though. Yeah, we do a lot of comparative work in the third, fourth week of the course, looking at the differences between human skeleton and non-human skeleton, um, which uses a combination of our own sort of historic museum resources, which mm-hmm. can be incredibly cool and sort of more practical domestic archaeological examples that we borrow from the School of Archaeology. Mm -hmm. So we do try and factor in non-human work, but it's not something that we teach to veterinary students or really our medical students. Okay, yeah. I think, uh, you know, if you, if you're, um, you know, move on to, you know, work with the police force or you work in a forensic anthropology team, uh, it becomes important to, you know, understand yeah. that you're looking at a human and not a, an animal. I mean, it's absolutely the first question, isn't it? Is what even is this? Is it, is it human? Could it be human? Yeah. Uh, the, no, the first question is, is it bone? <laughs> <laughs> no. See, usually they assume it's bone. Our first question is bone. Their first question is, is it human? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, you're quite right. Yeah. I remember one time in class, in osteology class, my lecturer, she tested us by, you know, having us look at a bunch of pathological skeletons and uh, we needed to point out what was wrong with it. So one of them was a piece of uh, vertebra and there was a radiograph sitting next to it. And very clearly, like all the bone inside had been deteriorated and it was a case of some kind of tuberculosis or similar bacterial infection. There was another one that she put on another uh, table and it was a skull and we picked it up and we saw nothing particularly interesting about it. It was a little bit heavy though. Like we, we were thinking like maybe something about the soil that it was in had imbued itself inside, making it a little bit denser. And we looked through the hole at the, ba- at, at the bottom of the skull. So we, we looked in through the, uh, what we call the foramen magnum and we looked inside and there was nothing you know, interesting about the inside of the skull, except for this one sort of, um, this one line of bone that had grown inside from like the left side of the skull to the right side of the skull, you know, inside the skull. And it was really, really weird. And in the end, basically like she had fooled us because it was a cast of a skull (laughs) and that line of bone was not bone at all. It was just a product of the casting process so that they could assemble the cranium back together uh, in order to make a very fantastic, realistic looking cast. But yeah. (laughs) That is incredibly mean. (laughs) We weren't tested on it, but it was mean. (laughs) I was absolutely waiting to hear which species it was. The fact that they tricked you with a human is just mean, Uh, (laughs) but a really good idea. Yeah, I thought that was uh, quite good. (laughs) I may use that. Um, I'm so sorry I've taken that. (laughs) Of course it was heavier because it wasn't even bone. Bone uh, has actually a lot of like, uh, you know, airy spaces inside. It's something that surprises people, isn't it? Just how light, particularly the skull, actually is. I think, yeah, you expect it to be this big, solid, dense object. Mm -hmm. 
um, but it's absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you have actually, uh, you know, since then, since you're, you know, you were a teenager, you have now actually assisted on a number of police forces, like around the UK, and you have you sit on a on a committee for forensic anthropology. And I'm wondering, when you're a teenager, you you obviously went into your bachelor's with a with an idea of what forensics is. Now that you've been out and actually helping in this field. What do you think are like some of the biggest things that are uh, different from what you expected? I think the biggest thing that was different, because it is never shown in any of the programs, is the paperwork. Mm-hmm. So the paperwork and the protective equipment are the two things that you just you just need to learn. You need to try it on and and have a go. Um, I I have to admit I've not done a tremendous amount of traditional forensic anthropology work. My experiences have been quite limited. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I am, um, so the United Kingdom has, in I think 2014, gone through a process where we've set up an accreditation process to um, acknowledge experts in forensic anthropology, mm-hmm. um, which operates in a three-tiered system. So I'm currently a level three anthropologist, um, which is essentially the entry-level position where you're allowed to scribe and you're allowed to do sort of, is it human, is it bone sort of questions. Right. And then everything else would be looked at as a sort of a training exercise for you and there'd be a more qualified and more experienced anthropologist alongside. Mm-hmm. So the experiences that I've had have been fairly limited so far, partly due to that sort of low level and just the geography and the amount of casework in the UK makes it quite challenging. Um, we're all paired up with a forensic mentor and mine is Miss Gail McKinnon who's a dual qualified forensic anth and forensic archaeologist. Um, she works down in England, quite far south of me, so it makes it very difficult to actually get out to casework because I'm, I'm that extra stage removed. But certainly the experiences I have had have been very eye-opening in terms of the, the way the procedures that we learn about and hear about actually have to be applied in real time. Mm-hmm. The level of detail that's required, the amount of um, attention that you have to pay, and like I said, just the sheer volume of recording. It's something we were introduced to in our fourth year, was this idea mm-hmm. that you know you photograph everything, you write down everything, you take all the notes you possibly can, because you're obviously going to need them later. Mm-hmm. And as a student, you're sitting there going, yeah, nah, you'll, I mean, you'd remember it though, right? Like, yeah. it's, you'd, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll totally know exactly what that thing was. And, <laughs> no. and of course, you'll get all the photos. You'll get the right photos <laughs> while you're there. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. no, it's the first time you're like, oh, there was a thing and I really needed a picture of it. And I can't, uh, I just don't have the right angle or I don't have, you know, where on earth would I have written that down? Mm-hmm. So that was something that, um, yeah, I think that's the biggest shock when you go out to do it. Yeah, it's certainly that kind of just the practical mm-hmm. things that you you think you know and you absolutely don't know until you've tried. For sure. Yeah, I remember uh, one again for the same osteology class. <laughs> we had like a, a medieval skeleton that we had to analyze, and um, we had three hours to examine it. And I remember making a, a bunch of notes. Like I thought that the skeleton belonged to a man of a certain age and had particular pathologies. And then, you know, I went home and then we had like two weeks to write up the, the report based on our notes. And I was so happy because I'd also like taken the time to, to take about 200 photographs of the skeleton so that I could just look at everything one more time. And everything, everything that I had noted down in the session was completely wrong and <laughs> you know, it was so good that I had photographs to, to compare stuff. That would be very helpful to then go back and sort of 
to pick up on the things. You're not going to get it right. And, you know, it, it does need a lot of like uh, detailed work. It absolutely does. And um, we did something very similar in our undergrad where we were given over the course of a semester and um, where we started doing a really detailed sort of literature based anthropology. We were allocated to a, a set of skeletal remains as pairs. And um, mm-hmm. purely for logistical purposes, we weren't working as a pair, we were independent. And we were given the task of analyzing the set of remains and doing a basic biological profile, so identifying what the sex of the person was likely to be, how old they may have been, where in the world they might have come from, um, and then looking for any other interesting mm-hmm. um, potentially identifying features, so if there was any trauma or pathology or anything like that. Um, and we had an, an extra twist on the end because they actually paired our forensic anthropology year up with final year law students to create a mock trial process where we all had to go and essentially defend our biological profile in front of an actual real judge. Um, wow. In, I think we did it in a courtroom, but I can't, I can't actually remember. Um, wow. And it was the most surreal experience, um, partly because it's we were learning what we were doing as anthropologists, how things actually worked. And we had the same issue where we'd, we'd go away thinking we'd come up with the answer. And then when you're trying to write it up, you look at the pictures going, that's not what I said in my notes. Um, mm-hmm. But we were also working with law students who were being taught <laughs> yeah. what forensic evidence is and how you would, how you would um, examine a witness. And the, the match off between an anthropology student who doesn't really know what they're doing and a law student who doesn't really know what they're doing was just brilliant to watch some of the questioning, some of the answers. It was wonderful. It was less wonderful when the person who was analyzing the same skeleton as me, I'd stood up and gone, oh, you know, they were female. They were, yeah. they were probably such and such an age. And then the other student that was doing my, um, my skeleton stood up and went, oh yeah, so they were male. <laughs> oh no. Um, and to their credit, we had the same, um, we had the same lawyer who had been told that we were not giving evidence against each other. We were just mm-hmm. giving evidence. But he immediately was like, aha, what your colleague said. <laughs> like, oh, no. That's so interesting, though, that like uh, they combined the different programs in this like, you know, practical exercise. It was a really good learning experience, I think, and um, particularly having mm-hmm. members of the judiciary there and um, the person supervising the law students have done criminal work. We had um, Professor Sue Black was one of the anthropologists that um, was um, that taught at Dundee at the time. She she put the whole session together, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had this sort of yep. vast wealth of expertise around us, giggling as we said ridiculous things on the stand. Um, so mm-hmm. it was a really good learning experience. Uh, yeah, uh, Professor Dame Sue Black uh, was our guest on episode 99. Yes, I listened. It was wonderful. <laughs> She's still the only Dame I've had on the show. But um, yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping Judy Dench does get back to me. <laughs> that would be an excellent catch. Um, I'd still listen to <laughs> Professor Dame Sue Black any day, but, yeah. <laughs> but Judy Dench would be good. I was hoping to also talk about some of the SciComm that you have done on online uh, recently. Uh, I, I saw that you know I found you through Twitter because you had started to you know just tweet some fun facts about you know where do we get the bone names from like in, in in etymology my favorite one was basically <laughs> someone online was asking about uh what is your favorite plane probably expecting you know people to mention like you know boeing jets and um oh, you know other fighter fighter jets <laughs> and you had just gone and said personally you're a big fan of the coronal plane <laughs> can you explain that and um yeah like just generally i, I think that that's really funny like 
yeah, I, I think it's really cool to to use Twitter and other social media to do outreach, obviously, because I do that too. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, the Chrono plane is definitely my favorite plane, um, which is simply a view if you were, and this is going to sound really gross, but if you were to essentially take an individual and sort of go side to side across their cheeks and kind of remove the face away to the front, what you'd be left with looking in on is a coronal plane. So it's that sort of section mm-hmm. um, through the body, through both shoulders, down the middle. Yeah, um, And the reason it's my favourite plane is purely because when you get a, a view like that of the skull um, on a on a CT or an MRI scan, mm-hmm. it's it's a glorious thing. You can see so much detail. Um, I don't know much about aviation. I'm not going to lie. I don't have a favourite <laughs> aircraft. So it just seems like a fitting response. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was very disappointed. Not too many people joined in. Um, but that kind of outreach and sort of particularly the terminology side of things has always really been quite interesting, particularly mm-hmm. the more I teach, because it's the sort of thing that I think a lot of what we do feels very inaccessible. If you mm-hmm. don't, if you're not in anatomy and you don't um, have a deep understanding of Latin or Greek, which I absolutely do not, um, mm-hmm. it feels like we've got our own terms and they mean nothing. And, and, lay people would just never be able to get into it and and join us but actually when you start breaking it down the original anatomists were actually pretty uninspired in the way that they named things mm-hmm. they were very good at looking at something and going well that's kind of a wedgie type shape so we'll, we'll call it that we'll call it wedgie thing and that's <laughs> right. where the sphenoid one of the bones of the skull comes from is it it mm-hmm. literally just means wedge shaped okay um, yeah. and it's as soon as you can say that to a student or to somebody who is aware of what the sphenoid should be, but is struggling mm-hmm. to then say, well, why is it called that? What, what's the point? And mm-hmm. um, you see this little light go on. I'm like, ah, okay. I, I see now. Um, and it happens throughout most of the body. If there's something that you can, you can pin kind of a descriptive term on and explain why it's being called that, mm-hmm. it'll either give an insight into what it looks like or where it is or what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And it makes it very easy to follow. Cool. The ones of the skull are definitely where I was I was stuck with that because the names are weird and wonderful. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I tweeted about the, the sphenoid, I had a range of suggestions for things because nobody says the sphenoid looks like a wedge. It's not the, because it's this beautiful little mothy piece of bone that stretches right through the middle of her skull. Mm-hmm. So I'd always say it looks like a moth or a wasp or it's some kind of flying insect. Right. Um, I don't know, what do you call the sphenoid? How would you describe that? I actually think that it does very much look like a, you know, species of moth uh, when I uh, remember what it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have a, I have, I have a friend, um, uh, Catherine Ryan, who also uh, was on the show at some point. Um, She actually studies like, uh, you know, CT scans of skulls, trying to understand the variation that we have in humans uh, of all of those sort of like sinus all the sinus spaces inside the skull and all the bones that, you know, surround those sinuses. So, yeah, I, I just think like those bones in particular, because we didn't have a lot of like micro CT scanning technology before are really like elusive and we don't really understand the variation. So yes. I think it's really, yeah, just really cool. But yeah, I would say it's a, it looks like a moth. Uh, absolutely. Um, and the responses to that were wide and wonderful. And very few people, again, said moth. Everybody had their own thing it looks like. <laughs> Nobody said wedge. So obviously the the Romans and the Greeks were not, not up on their modern identifications. 
Yeah. Well, maybe when they were like, you know, uh, doing dissections themselves, trying to study it, they didn't actually get out the <laughs> the entire that thing. That is very true. They maybe didn't sit with it on their desk and spend some time going, what does it look like? <laughs> yeah. um, my favorite piece of bone um, in that respect is a piece of the ear, a piece of the temporal bone, which mm-hmm. is on the, the side of the skull. It's where the ear develops it within. Yeah. And as a... As a child, it develops from four separate little pieces of bone that all knit themselves together. Um, and one of the sections, which is known as the petrous portion, which is the really thick inner part of the ear that mm-hmm. houses your sort of sense of hearing. Mm-hmm. When you see it as a sort of a separate piece of juvenile bone, it looks like Smaug the Dragon from The Hobbit. Um, <laughs> okay. And it actually looks like Peter Jackson's version of Smart the Dragon. And it's just this amazing sort of side-on view of a very angry dragon that lives inside your skull. And I love that. Um, apparently, I've been told since it doesn't look like a dragon, it looks like a pig, which just shows that anatomists like to argue, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, and if you hold it in the right direction, um, the the face of the dragon actually looks in this direction of the side of the skull that it comes from. So mm-hmm. you can even then start using it to identify this, this dragony piece of bone is a piece of temporal and it's facing off to the left. So it's, a, it's part of a left temporal bone. Mm-hmm. So you can start pegging some of those weird observations um, and links into actual functional practical use. Yeah. So re- really we should be calling it something like uh, you know, dracoid uh, bone or like, you know the the port the pork the porcus <laughs> porcus region. I would be a huge fan of that. Do you think we could start a campaign to just rename the skull after um, things that we we recognise? <laughs> absolutely, we can set up a series of Twitter polls, and the top ranked result. Is oh, the no, 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 no. Then you then you're going to get you know uh, Petrus D. McPetrus. <laughs> oh, can you imagine the? Did you happen to? Uh, no worries, you can like. It's fine. But uh, did you happen to catch episode 125? It was on 125. A great guest uh, called Alexandra Kralik, and she does work on like orangutans, but also uh, does a lot of SciComm online, just like you. I didn't. It was one of the ones... Um, I was actually not really for recording. I was, I was listening yesterday on my dog walk, and I almost clicked on that one to listen, and then I went <laughs> a couple further down um, to look at um, forensic archaeology and DBI, which caught my eye um, okay so yeah. i haven't listened yet but I okay. so um on episode 125 i brought out this game that alexandra and i played and it was um about uh basically like i have a whole bunch of bones written down on tiny pieces of paper and i pull one out and we read out what, what bone it is and you and i have to come up with a fun fact to do with that bone okay are you up for the, Are you up for the game? <laughs> I mean, I don't promise it'll be a fun fact, but go for it. <laughs> okay, let me, let, 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 let's. Uh, you know, this is the second time only that I'm doing this, so it's a bit of an experiment, but we'll we'll see. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Uh, the first fact that uh, the first bone that I have is the clavicle. Can you come up with something uh, about the clavicle? So the no, no, because you said fun. Um, the clavicle <laughs> is a, a really interesting bone because it's obviously one people know about um, because it's really commonly broken when you fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the reason that it breaks in the midline um, more often than not is because of the way that it develops because it, most bones in the body come from one source in, in utero mm-hmm. and the clavicle is one of the few that develops from two separate pieces of the embryo 
and it's the point where those join together mm-hmm. that it will usually break in mm-hmm. um, because it's a, it's a point of weakness. It's two things that shouldn't really go together, yeah. but for some reason <clears throat> have decided to. Alternatively, you could do something fun, like most species don't have a clavicle because they don't need them. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. It's dogs that have a little tiny stubby clavicle, isn't it? That doesn't actually really connect to anything. It just sits there. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's actually a relatively unique human piece of bone. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. You're teaching me so much. I think that we do have them like in uh, chimpanzees and in fossil hominids that came before us, like uh, uh, Australopithecus afarensis and you know Homo erectus. We we have clavicles there that help us to understand um, what people were using their well, what hominins were using their arms and their shoulders for at the time. Yeah, I suppose because presumably speaking of somebody whose um, human evolution is in desperate need of work, um, <laughs> presumably the more bipedal species are more likely to have clavicles mm-hmm. if they're using their upper limb for prehensile sort of activities rather than simply for moving. Yeah, yeah. I think that we already have, uh, we, we already see them in like uh, bonobos and chimpanzees, but the flexibility of them uh, has been changed yeah. because they're not swinging through the trees anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, one, one more bone? Okay. Okay, so let me see. So, um, okay, uh, I have ossicles. <laughs> the ossicles are the three bones that are found inside your ear and they include uh, what commonly are referred to as like the anvil hammer and uh, I always forget the third one. Stirrup. Yes, stirrup. But uh, in in science, we we refer to them as the incus, the malleus, and the stapes. Oh, I don't know if I have a fun fact for the ossicles. They're really important in uh, not just like uh, hearing, like they don't just uh, help us with the hearing apparatus, but um, in also in in balance as well. Like people don't realize that uh, our balance is actually really tied to the, the the anatomy inside the ear. Yeah, absolutely. The, so the ossicles are. I mean, certainly the smallest pieces of bone in the adult human body, they are minuscule. Um, but every single one of them, if you know how, you can still tell what side of the body it's come from. They still have these little unique sided quirks mm. that you can you can still identify them. Um, it was That was my favorite dissection as an undergraduate student. Oh, wow. It was the very last session we did where we um, dissected into the top of the temporal bone, that bone around the ear, mm-hmm. to try to find these ossicles. Um, so that we could get an appreciation for their morphology and their size. Wow. Um, I remember that very fondly. Yeah. Very, very strange afternoon. But <laughs> I would think that that is like one of the, you know, the hardest ones. Uh, so yeah, I'm surprised to hear like that you enjoyed it. It was almost a, a combination of all the, the skills that we had been taught up to that point was trying to identify these three bones. And um, I think we only ever found two of them, the stapes, the stirrup, is the smallest of the three and it looks like a stirrup it's got this really delicate little plate where you'd set your foot and mm-hmm. um, when you were horse riding and um, and that's very very hard to remove interesting yeah where, where can people find you online if people have any questions about your interview or they want to you know continue to learn uh you know fun facts about bones the best place to find me is probably my twitter handle it's the only form of social media i really do um, and that is at bone doctor phd which I set up without even a spark of awareness. Um, mm-hmm. I have to say it's been ridiculed since by a few of my colleagues. Ridiculed? Um, Why? I, I, don't, I don't know what the implications of Bone Doctor could be. Probably not for your listeners, though, it has to be <laughs> oh, said. I, oh, I, get it. I get it now. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Thankfully, I've not had any inappropriate 
requests for information. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, at the end of every episode, uh, we usually ask the guests to come up with a hashtag. Do you have a fun hashtag for this episode? I mean, the only thing I had at this point was something along the lines of lockdown anthro because I'm very much stuck in my home right now. So if you want to tweet me, if you want to come chat, please do. <laughs> um, I need something to fill my days, get me away from recording teaching and marking essays. Mm-hmm. So what, what was the um, hashtag? So lockdown anthro. Lockdown anthro. Okay. Um, certainly we here in the UK are still still locked down, still staying home. Mm-hmm. So um, certainly we here in Scotland are still locked down, staying home. Yeah. So listeners, if you want to let Stephen and I know that you have listened all the way through, then use the hashtag lockdown anthro on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. The podcast can be found at Arcanant Pod. If you listening to this episode right now are able to and are in a place where you can help support the podcast a little bit financially each month, then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod where you will find a bunch of options on how you can help me out, basically cover the server costs and other things that I need to continue to create these episodes for you and interview interesting people around the world who work in anthropology and archaeology. Um, I really appreciate anybody who goes to Patreon and, and does this. It really means a lot. So uh, if you can do that, go Go to patreon.com slash arc and anth pod. New episodes of the show will go up on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you find podcasts. And you can also go to arcananth.com to find all the episodes and more information about Stephen's work. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. You are more than welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. And uh, listeners, I'll have a, another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.